Yeah, you know what? When I moved in, I looked like Peter Cook. And when I moved out, I looked like Frank Zappa. (laughs) (laughs) Full circle. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, outspoken lover of songs about love. Ooh, you got the right record today. (laughs) I sure do. (laughs) I'm Jeremy Ruggles, end of year list eye roller. I really just do not care which albums you thought were the best this past year. <laughs> it all sucked. <laughs> Listen, if no Radiohead albums came out this year, there's no good records. <laughs> <laughs> this is our first episode of 2021. We didn't even mention on our last episode that it was our final 2020. Uh, but I am Peter Cook, Yellow Knife's foremost champion of ice melting <laughs> what what part of the country are you yellow, in? yellow knife canada oh yeah gotta melt the summer that's important work mm-hmm. uh my name is who are you sir my name is ben pirani i am chairman of the lindrum rimshot appreciation society and uh detuning guild well Ooh. perfect that's, I, I think we have assembled the right crew to talk about this week's record, which is the legendary self-titled debut from Kashif. And, oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, Ben Pirani. I think, you know what I realized about Ben Pirani? We all saw Ben Pirani live at Shakespeare's in Kalamazoo right as we were about to launch this podcast in 2019. Oh, wow. Oh, far out. Yeah, that is far out. Yeah. That was a cool gig. I um I, I met so many uh so many nice people. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, that was a great show. I, I Sean had just introduced me to your music right before that. And uh if you haven't heard Ben Pirani listeners, it is some throwback soul like no other. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> a glowing <laughs> review from Peter. That was like one of the last shows I went to before lockdown as well. So Oh my god. Yeah, when was that? I guess it was last November. Yeah, shit, that was like the... I think it was September 2019. Okay. Yeah, that would have been... Uh, New Year's Eve was the last live performance uh, I did with the with the whole band, actually. Okay. So that would have been the second to last show with the gang that you guys saw. Okay. So yeah, that wasn't... Wow. I, I definitely like saw a handful of shows after that, but I think that might have been the last show that I actually booked at least booked at a venue anyways oh sean don't mention that you book mm-hmm. shows you're gonna get five billion emails <laughs> <laughs> i was listening to your podcast and i heard you book shows so uh <laughs> god damn it edit that part out jeremy please help me yeah that's true <laughs> <laughs> well ben you also lived for eight or nine years with a former guest of ours steve plastic crime wave krakow yes the imitable 
Is that how you say it? Emit- emitable? Emitables? Plastic crime wave? Uh, yes. Edible? Edible? Yeah. Yeah, edible is right. Yeah, Steve and I knew each other from just kind of on the, uh, you know, on the old uh, scene, which is a word I'll use sort of loosely, as I was saying before we got started, that it's just like a, it was just kind of an overarching association of freaks. And, um, in Chicago, in Chicago, yeah, punk, punk skins, junkies, <laughs> uh, acid freaks, <laughs> uh, you know, you name it, a little bit of this, rockers, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And, uh, yeah, I just kind of knew Steve around from like shows and stuff. Oh, you're based in Brooklyn now, right? I actually live in Manhattan now in Harlem, so I really, you know, I've made, I've made it now, you know, from <laughs> the, from the shitty Western yeah. Avenue, Chicago. Now I'm living uptown, baby. <laughs> Bright lights in the big city. There's still a hint. There's a there's a still a hint of that psychedelic freak sound underneath the uh, very authentic soul that you make. Oh, I hope so. I mean, I think that's that's probably one of the. Uh, you know, authentic threads that run through it if I'm doing my job right, you know? That's what I want to hear. It's like, it's not just all these records I bought or looked for or was obsessed with in my 20s. It's like also everything else that I've ever <laughs> been into or I'm interested in now, you know? So, I, yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I'm flattered that you hear that um, in the mix there, yeah. Well, you guys have seen the live show and that really, is, I think it's starting to come out more and more playing with the band some of the material on that record is is really old yeah my 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 psychedelic uh <laughs> past is is uh, it's it's definitely coming out to the having flashbacks to the forefront well that that and yeah exactly that and all the mushrooms i've been <laughs> eating lately yeah that does it too <laughs> perfect well should we start listening to another artist highly influenced by a wide range of music Oh my God. Yes, please. Let's. Oh my God. I'm All so right. stoked on this. When, as soon as you asked me, Sean, I knew exactly what to do. I knew exactly what my answer would be. Which is perfect because we've referenced Kashif, I think, at least three other episodes and been talking for a while about doing a record of his. So when you said you wanted to do Kashif self titled, it was just, it's just perfect. Oh, sick. Yeah. All yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't believe it. I was, I was like, surely Sean prompted this. And Sean's like, nope, he mentioned that without my influence. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll talk, let's listen to some and then we're going to, we're going to talk about it. Do you, um, if cool. that's how you guys are. Let's, let's do exactly that. Yep. All right. Uh, cool. I'm going to drop the needle on side one, track one. Don't stop my love.
in jest, I, I've referred to Kashif self-titled as the Sgt. Peppers of early 80s R&B and kind of as a, as a joke. But today, as I was kind of going over it and listening to it again, and this track in particular, as soon as I put it on, I picked up the needle and I put it back again. Because similarly to now i can i don't know what listening to sergeant peppers was like in the night in 1967 or whatever and i don't know what listening to kashif was like in 1983 but what i do from knowing what i know about music and r&b specifically when you drop the first you hear, hear the first four bars on this thing and it sounds like it's like nothing that it was it's just like setting a new bar instantly for like what's going to come after that the keyboard sounds like all this stuff was like absolutely cutting edge at the time. And if you think about it, so it was tape phasing and music concrete, um, you know, tape loops and things like this that the Beatles were doing. Just taking like the absolutely new of the new and then chucking that in there and then just changing the whole fucking game up. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. It's kind of like the, the secret Sergeant Peppers because it's, it, it changed the game and every artist knew about this record and knew about his work and critics um, remember him very fondly, but you don't hear the average person name dropping Kashif all that often. You know, my, my roommate is French and, um, she was just kind of saying that even to this day, like that track and all these, many of the other jams on this album, basically all four that we're going to listen to today are like legit discotheque classics in France. Interesting. And like mm. here and, you know, well, I don't know. Europeans often have a better appreciation for for american things than americans do which is fine and i and i and i can understand that <laughs> like americans are are sort of maybe if if we set the pace and i'll i don't know we, if we set the pace for world music then you know that makes sense because uh yeah we were uh we were just talking a few episodes back about kid creole and the coconuts and how they were huge in europe but didn't really ever make much splash in the in the states and that's a similar time period too yeah the, the record we did was from 82 tropical gangsters oh man has ever has anybody ever done the savannah band not yet uh, well when, next time when i come back <laughs> <laughs> we already already figured out your next pick uh, we haven't even gotten um, through the first track and i'm already uh <laughs> <laughs> you, you do declare i do um, i do declare yeah. indeed <laughs> Sean introduced me uh, to Kashif earlier, actually right around the time of uh, lockdown or right before that, back in March of 2020. And instantly I was uh, very wowed when I thought about the context of this being 1983, that it kind of paved the way for so much that happened, not only the rest of the 80s, but even into the 90s. For sure. Yeah. 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 I was reading one analysis of kind of Kashif's legacy, talking about how he, he's the essential link between the big disco producers of the 70s and then like the big R&B producers of the 90s. Like there, yeah. you wouldn't really have a uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis without Kashif. Right. But he's also coming like straight out of the fat back, cool in the gang bag bt express obviously mm -hmm. he's just mm -hmm. like coming he's shooting directly out of that scene as a very young guy i don't know how old he was in 83 but it was not very old yeah and uh so he takes all this stuff that he learns from the old heads right i mean he's a legit 
R&B jobber by the time in the late 70s. He's already like a legit dude, like playing in all these big, big, big groups. And then, yeah. boom, he just like drops and like fucks up the whole fucking scene, <laughs> you know? And everybody knew it. Yeah, uh, Whitney knew it. Clive Davis knew it. Mm-hmm. What's her name? Uh, Stacey Latisola knew it. Uh, uh, Evelyn Champagne King knew it. Melba Moore. And he made... He he made bigger hits with them than he ever had on his on his own. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And he he did get a fair amount of recognition later in life too. His early career was pretty much just him making a lot of money for other people for the most part. But I think he got four Grammy nominations later on in his career. He didn't win any, which is bogus. But you know uh, what? Yeah, yeah. I think he won a Grammy for this. Is so weird. And I, we'll need to we'll need a citation on this, but. I think he won a Grammy for the instrumental song on the second LP. Okay. Which is also sometimes credited, I think you can find almost all the songs credited to Kenny G, who's mm-hmm. like his collaborator on that project before Kenny G was a, a, a you know, multi-platinum selling artist, you know, and his time wasn't going to come for a little bit. A while later, which probably with the help of uh, Kashif himself, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So it looks it looks like he was nominated for the Mood in 1983. Okay, right, uh, yeah. It, I don't know. It doesn't. Is that the one you were thinking of? Yeah, I think that's on the first album too. Mood. I think that's the the instrumental okay. on the first the first album. I'm, yeah, I'm only is. seeing nomination for that. Okay, yeah, I might be wrong about that. I, I had seen a few places say he got nominated four times, but I hadn't seen any mention of him winning anything. But okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that Kenny G connection is 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 pretty interesting. Uh, I mean, speaking of somebody with some like kind of funk credentials, th- nobody wants to think this about <laughs> about Kenny G, you know, because yeah. he's like kind of such a cornball. But he was like a funk um, fusion ripper in his time, you know. We can't be mad at the guy for wanting to sell a billion records, you know. Yeah, totally. We we've been talking about that a lot on this podcast. How when you take away the decades of legacy and like cornball reputation. A lot of some of the cheesiest and least respected artists are actually major talents that do have some really good material in some places. Yeah, right. Yeah, you can't blame them for being... If I ever get anywhere in my career, I want everybody to forget that I ever did anything cool. <laughs> think I'm, and think I'm corny in 20 years. And totally. then maybe in 50 years, they'll come back around you and say, you know what, that guy wasn't so bad. Yeah, a couple of those good. early seven inches were pretty fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> you got so soft, you know. Yeah, exactly. The money so changed became him, a, man. He became a Democrat, man. Oh, good. <laughs> Just kidding. I'll never sell out. <laughs> so, uh, Ben, what was your introduction to Kashif? How'd you get turned out to him? Mike? collecting really started with collecting like you know at first i got into sort of i don't know classic rock and stuff the beatles obviously and then uh, i started to get more into r&b and then i was really heavily into like 60s stuff like 60s soul coming from growing up in chicago was like all at my fingertips and during this whole time i was just completely ignoring like it's kind of a, a youthful uh, naivete where I was like, well, no, I only want to hear this right now. And that's a, everybody does that. I'm only interested in this specific little thing. And then uh, as I got older, I was just like, 
starting to get into um i don't know i was buying like sop with camel lps the one with the stepper <laughs> on it and you know shit, like shit like that just like learning more about the stuff and also know understanding how like the things that i like intersect with like the huge r&b radio hits that i grew up on and you know when you get to a place like kashif that becomes really really evident i obviously i knew the i had already knew the big hits so at any rate i picked up the lp um i heard uh stone love or whatever i think what we'll hear next was like vaguely familiar to me because i did listen to r&b radio in the early 1980s wbmx chicago yeah stone love sound familiar to me too when sean introduced me to this mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think that was that was probably a, the biggest one off of this uh off of this first one not the supreme song <laughs> no oh that's a good song stoned too, yeah stoned i love that love. song it might be a smoke oh no no i think it's a holland holland dozier holland tune but yeah stone love also a good song i mean and so stone love is like a phrase it's also like you know the shy lights had a song called like i'm stone in love with you and we're talking about like five eight years before kashif was on on the scene and like that was like kind of like a nice a cool old old heads type of phrase well that i say now well like when you're like I don't know, I was stone, cold, drunk, I was stone, whatever, as an exclamation, kind of. That's like, feels like, even in the 80s, that was like an old head thing to say. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Referencing like Stone Soul Picnic and stuff like that, too. Yeah, exactly. But that's because like, Kashif at 15 was like kicking it with these guys who were almost 30, like some road dog in like real heavy R&B cats. I don't know. I, I can only speculate, but... I just like I've always kind of lo- I've always kind of dug that like real 1970s like stone you're you're a stone fox you're a stone whatever you know I'm stone in love with you all these things that kind of stone cold crazy stone hey can't forget that one <laughs> <laughs> I have a weird story about that song too but I won't I'll, I won't get into that one right here <laughs> Queen yeah uh good song heavy metal yeah. Proto. Proto metal. Yeah. That tune, um, I, I just think that the one that we just heard is just like such a great way to jump off an album. And and when I was like what I was saying about Sgt. Peppers is like when you when you cut it on and you hear like the crowd start talking and then that fuzz guitar comes in, you're like, what the fuck? Like it really hits you. And I hear the same thing when I hear like that arpeggiator come in and then those like weird chords and like also this fool got the Yamaha DX7, like before anybody had it he was freaking all that stuff before people well for one it, it was becoming more accessible on a consumer level I, not not that kashif had any trouble getting into like studio grade shit that's when people were starting to have like home studios and stuff like that yeah yeah i feel like a lot of people also were still learning how to use synthesizers at this point and it, it sounds like kashif knows exactly what he wants to do with them and employ them throughout the songs yeah, if if you hear him talk, I mean, obviously he's a, a true artist. Like he really has a that. In hearing him speak about music and stuff, you can tell that he's like a real artist. But he's also a fucking total dork, and you know that he sat there and poured over the fucking Lindrum operating manual and like figured out how to do it. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I think sometimes that's like the that's the key, like the golden sort of thing is like figuring out the technical aspects or having the patience to like understand what that is and then coming in on top of that with like killer songs killer arrangements great lyrics all that stuff which is really the crucial part 
Yeah, he, he was definitely just the, the total package of an artist, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And he played all those in- goddamn instruments. Oh, yeah, it's an... It's absurd. I mean, a lot of his a lot of his solo records, this one included, he's playing the majority of the sounds on there, especially like a lot of the keyboard related stuff. Yeah, right. And he was also figuring out like these new, you know, these brand new um, these uh, sequencers, which were like new and very very clunky. Nothing like you got today, or even a step sequencer on a, a like a, a drum machine that might be a little bit newer not user friendly you know you're talking about like a rack a thing that sits in a rack that acts as a brain and like midi was like pretty new we were just coming over from like the control voltage thing he took this thing and he's like okay i know what i want to do i'm gonna like figure out how to do it you know and then invented like synthesizer funk it's not like cool and the gang wasn't fucking around with synths and stuff like that but this was just like the the moment in time that this like he just kind of created this thing. Yeah, it was like it, it it had become obvious that synthesizers were, you know, the instrument that everybody needed to have. And then Kashif came along and was just like, hey, all this new stuff that everyone's trying to figure out, guess what? I've already fucking mastered it and you all are gonna be ripping me off now for the next five years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, for sure. So my introduction to Kashif was kind of like I kind of got into it backwards. Like you were saying my earlier days of soul collecting it was all about the 60s stuff and the early funk and the the early raw sound and i didn't want to hear anything too shiny and then you know started listening to bands like brothers johnson started getting appreciation for that funk sound and then doing a uh, monthly funk night in kalamazoo at bell's brewery i started gravitating more and more towards the boogie funk sound because that just seemed to work really well with the crowds that were coming out and started to develop more and more of an appreciation for that style of music and as i was like starting to figure out what was the kind of stuff that i liked the most the stuff that worked the best i gradually started to realize like wait most of the stuff that works the best is all produced by this guy kashif and i found (laughs) this uh this record in a not a thrift store where did i find this well i found it digging found it for a dollar yeah. some like you can find it anywhere backwood spot yeah i mean you know online it's like a ten dollar record but that's the thing with all these great boogie funk records is like they just they don't jump out to the uh people who aren't already hip to this sound you know like if you weren't into right. funk music you wouldn't really see this cover and think like oh this is a record i need to hear you know right it's kind of a yeah. kind of a sleeper in that regards i love the cover image too also just on a on a just as a brief aside like he's sort of doing that like it's like a very 1980s like almost like a television commercial or he's like oh my god you surprised me like even, like <laughs> i just turned around and there you are oh yeah. my god I, I can hardly believe it yeah <laughs> well while you're here check out what i did with these sims yeah exactly and then you flip, <laughs> you flip it over and he's like now i'm brooding on the side of the i'm like brooding in a dark club you know like <laughs> <laughs> so yeah for me it was it was just this moment of like realizing that the thing i liked most is what this guy is entirely responsible for it's like what you're saying with he just fucking changed the game it's like i yeah com- almost experienced that game change you know decades removed from it <laughs> in 2020 yeah exactly <laughs> old music is like it's just never gonna end there's always gonna be something new to listen to even though every day i'm just like no i must have you know we've all heard everything now because there's what youtube or whatever 
but it's just not true. It's just like, because major label uh, R&B records from 1983, at one point in my life, I'd just be like, what? Who gives a fuck? You know what I mean? Right. right. Whitney Houston, like, come on, get get the fuck out of here. You know, you change, but the music that already exists that you weren't ready for is sitting there Mm -hmm. waiting for you. It's it's still waiting. Exactly. Yeah. When we have Jeremy, were you at all familiar with this uh, before we decided to do this record? I was, I believe I first heard it when I was doing a DJ thing with Sean. And I was like, whoa, what was that? And he showed me the thing and it's Kashif. Yeah, I've only known about it for a year or two tops. But I found, especially listening back again, that I prefer the production style on this to like modern production. Mm-hmm. There's just so much like space in his mixes. Mm. And that's what really like caught my ear and really I enjoyed on these listens through this week was the, yeah, he engineers the arrangements so that there's actual space for the voice and you hear all the like subtleties in the voice, unlike modern productions where they're throwing like 20 different instruments at you all the time and it just feels like packed to the gills and the voice is just this robotic thing buried in there somewhere. So I don't know. I like it. <laughs> awesome. So play me another song. Perfect. <laughs> all right. The track that we have referenced a couple times, Stone Love. We've hyped it. Stone Love. So 
that song is one of many perfect examples of what we were just talking about with uh, how much space he was able to put into his music while still making it just so funky. I think in a lot of ways, he really kind of elevated the slow jam too in a way that was going to be have big influence on R&B music after this. You know, I, I think a lot of records previous to this, you had your funky bangers and you had your very mellow, like not as funky slow jams. And he was like, why can't we just put it right there in the middle, you know? That's a great point. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, uh, he's like the the line between uh, Bobby Womack and R. Kelly. I don't want to say R. Kelly because he's, you know, terrible. But <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. But... Yeah, that's like that's a really, really, really excellent point. And kind of going back to what you were saying about the space in these mixes and stuff, you know, it opens up and all we have is drums, these guitar hits, and then like his extremely funky and tasteful bass playing, playing in a, a funky way, which I'm sure he learned like playing on the road with BT Express, but he's also playing in a really melodic way, in a way that not just James Jamerson would play, but also in a way that like kind of Paul McCartney would play. Mm. So right from the jump there, you just have this bass and this guitar hit and there's so much room in the middle of it. And then boom, in drops this kind of gospel piano and the beautiful melody. And then here comes the bridge before we're about to drop into the big hook with the punchline and everything drops out except for the drums and the, uh, and the vocals. Yeah. There's no bass. Everything drops out. It's like um, a pretty bold, as far as the songwriting arranging goes, like that's uh, unorthodox uh, to say the least. Right. And then boom, here it comes, that big one and it drops and it's like all, it's completely worth it, you know? Yep. And it, he made it just feel so natural too, even though it changed the game. And it, it, it feels so natural in this record also because we've heard so many artists that are using those ideas now and having these sparse arrangements doesn't seem as out of place, but to really look at the context of this R and B music before this, most of the big bands were really going with like the earth, wind and fire kind of mode where it's like, let's get as many people on stage as we can. Everybody's shredding. And you know, some of those bands like earth, wind and fire obviously did that really, really well, but there was less bands that were going for this real stripped down, kind of feel and again he just totally fucking changed the game when he dropped this record yeah i will say that uh i was looking at the players on this and i think kashif is bass on most of the tracks but on this one it's wayne brathwaite who's on bass uh okay all right i gotta look up this guy because of course he's somebody wayne yeah he worked he worked with with uh the usual suspects associated with kashif melba moore kenny g billy ocean Okay, so he's the guy. Oh, he's probably the bass player on um, Nights. Do you know that that Billy that early Billy Ocean disco cut? Oh, he could uh, he could very well be one of those nights. Yeah, but you know it's funny. Like I can hear it. I I can hear that that's the guy. We're gonna well, hopefully I'll be uh, I'll be proved right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we've we've mentioned a lot of bits and pieces of his bio, but I think real quick I'll run through. The brief Kashif bio here. Oh, before we do that, yeah. Sean, we should mention Lala. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about Lala. There was a, yeah. There was a there was a woman's voice in there as well, and that was Lala. And who, who is Lala, Peter? LaForest Lala Cope, American singer who worked with Kashif a lot, collaborated. She co-wrote that song, Stone Love, that we just heard, and she wrote some early hits. 
for Whitney Houston. That's true. Ah, about that. Uh, yeah, one of Kashif's like biggest uh, calling cards, like the thing that every interviewer drops at the beginning of you know talking about Kashif, is that he uh, co-wrote Whitney Houston's first hit single. He did two records on Whitney's first album, and uh, Lala co-wrote both those songs with him it's the first two songs on whitney houston's self-titled record from 85 you give good love and thinking about you both good joints and also just like that was a big one but the one that came after that for whitney was like cemented her as like a a pop star like i think before that she was in the firmly in the r&b range and then these guys got in because she got in the mix and stuff and then boom she's like boom, top 40, you know, she yeah. just became a pop star. The uh, interesting tidbit there is Lila had actually written the song You Give Good Love with the idea of having Roberta Flack do the song. And she wrote it and submitted it and then like called to check on the song. They're like, yeah, it's in the pile with the rest of the demos that we're really not going to pay attention to. We don't care about it. <laughs> it's like kind of <laughs> apparently like rudely rejected the song and Kashif went into the studio working with Lila and was like, you're... You seem pretty down. What's up? She told him about, you know, getting rejected on this song. He's like, well, let me hear it. She plays it for me. He's like, no, no, they were wrong. That's a hit. Let me, <laughs> let me perfect this song with you. And uh, we'll give it to this Whitney Houston girl that I'm trying to make some music for. And boom, first hit. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Just briefly, I, I did uh, get Wayne uh, Breath right here on the, uh, on my uh, discogs here and he made a bunch of uh he played on a bunch of like calypso stuff which is and then on kashif and billy ocean which is like the most new york shit you can just ever put together in your mind where you <laughs> you go from playing <laughs> with lord smitty to uh to kenny g and kashif and freddie jackson you know what i mean it's just like that's <laughs> just how it'd be around here <laughs> yeah yeah totally <laughs> anyway awesome all right, well, you guys ready for this Kashif bio now? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, let's dig in. Hit me. So he was born under the name Michael Jones on December 26th, 1956. Uh, apparently, there are some conflicting reports onto, on the uh, exact year of his birth because he grew up in foster homes. The only connection he has to his birth parents is that his birth, birth certificate stated that his mother was arrested when he was four months old and he was put into the foster care system. I didn't see a lot of details, but apparently he endured a lot of abuse from bad foster care homes for his first few years. And then until he was in a more stable foster situation at about the age of six, but a very rough start mm -hmm. to the world for him. Uh, but he was drawn to music at a very early age. He purchased a, or was possibly given a $3 song flute in elementary school and just played it constantly he talks about how having such a rough life music was the only constant good thing in his life so he really like held on to it and gravitated towards that as a i guess as a means of coping with the things going on around him escapism yeah exactly mm. and then uh so as things started to stabilize for him a little bit he also had some very positive early role models in the school system and he had a, a good music teacher in junior high who really guided him through his love of music. And by the age of 12, he had become proficient at keyboards, brass, and woodwind, as well as being a competent drummer. 
And then just three years later, at the age of 15, he was hired to join the band BT Express. Um, around that same time as when he changed his name to Kashif, one of the other BT Express members was uh, very into teachings of the Nation of Islam and had given him a book of Islamic names. And the one he gravitated towards was the name Kashif, which means discoverer, inventor, and magic maker. How about that? Mm. It's just so fitting for him. It's perfect. It's like a prophe <laughs> prophecy. So this this story is wild too. So he, he auditions for BT Express at the age of 15. And after his audition, they tell him, hey, bring a suitcase to the next rehearsal. So he, he packs a suitcase, brings his, his mini Moog to the next rehearsal, shows up, and the band's not set up for rehearsal, but there's a tour bus. And they're like, all right, you got your suitcase, get on board. And then he literally toured for two and a half years straight after that. <laughs> Jesus. Imagine that. Yeah, just like complete culture shock. Like, all right, this is your life now. He's on, I believe, three different BT Express records. And then in 1978, there's conflicting reports of whether he quit the band or was kicked out. Kashif claims that he was kicked out of the band for basically being the like the the music dork. He said the band just kept wanting to party, and he was always being like, "No, let's not party. Let's go in the studio and re rehearse and write new material." And they just like hated that he was always the buzzkill. <laughs> <laughs> what a weird teenage boy. I mean, presumably it was also led a, a, a sober life as a following of the teachings of uh, the Nation of Islam. I mean, you can only assume. Yeah, from what I from what I gathered, he was a very uh, adamant about being sober and just having a, a very strong work ethic. I could take a page from Kashif's book there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So whether he was kicked out or left the band on his own terms in the late 70s he jumped out of the group ready to hit the ground running apparently he'd he'd been hired by bt express because they wanted to have just some kind of slight tonal coloration with keyboard and the more he played with them the more he was really exploring the growing influence and usage of the synthesizer and especially like synthesized bass lines and having uh, two and a half years of straight touring and recording experience under his belt. He was primed and ready. And I actually just learned this a little bit ago, but his intention was not to be the super producer that he quickly became. Uh, he was actually in the process of forming a group called Stepping Stone, where he was going to do all the arrangements and writing. And they had made some demos that they sent to a handful of labels, uh, one of them being RCA, who got back to him pretty quickly and was like, the music's all right, but actually we really want you to produce for this artist we have in our roster named Evelyn King. Mm. And, you know. Champagne. Champagne herself. He took that gig and in the process of working with Evelyn King, he took a page out of the Gamble and Huff playbook and decided to form a production company that was they ended up calling Mighty M Productions, formed with the great Paul Lawrence and Maury Brown. Nice. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, and Maury Brown is the co-producer on this album. Yeah, so the three of them worked on a ton of stuff. Um, sometimes it was like equal, equal work between the three of them. Sometimes it was one of them taking the lead, but they all seemed to kind of have a hand in helping each other with these productions. So for the next few years, those three guys were just working on like five to ten records at a time at all times. So the, the first breakout hit for them was Evelyn King's 1981 album, I'm In Love, which was kind of the, 
the pre-game changer. That was the first real rumblings from Kashif as people hearing the new sounds they were doing with Evelyn King's work and how well this kind of stripped down production was working with her vocal style. And yeah. And you can tell the Kashif influence on those records. When I put this on, I was like, wait, isn't get up off your love on this album. And then I was like, wait, that's an Evelyn champagne King song. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, 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 exactly. She had albums out and stuff, but she wasn't, um, well, Kashif took her into the, the star sphere you know she had uh uh, i think one or two albums out um before 1981 more in like kind of in the pre they're sort of in i guess late disco game and i think like a good thing to mention about kashif is how he uh he straddled this moment in time where disco was dead like funk as we knew it was kind of dying out you know even in the early 80s even james brown was in the rocky movie you know what i mean Mm-hmm. he just made the new thing and like not only was uh whitney and evelyn listening but so was fucking madonna was also listening you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and she made her whole first album is like uh i mean obviously she has some super heavy people on on the on the joint like with reggie and stuff but they were obviously listening to kashif and they obviously knew what was yeah. going on in the clubs which was evelyn champagne king yeah, the guitarist on this album, Ira Siegel, is on Madonna's first album, her self-titled. Okay, yeah, that makes it makes sense that there's a lot of crossover there because uh, who's the Reggie uh, Reggie Lucas? Am I talking out of my ass? Guy who produced uh, some of the early uh, Madonna stuff. Who else played with Miles? One of the best things about Madonna throughout her career is that she had an ear for what was hot, and at that moment in time. It was Kashif and it was Evelyn Champagne King. And that's just what was popping in the clubs where she was at listening to what's happening. You know, she just aggregated the style, which is that's a gift for some artists that they just know what's what the sound is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Reggie Lucas was the producer that you were. Yeah. Reggie Lucas. Who did I say? No, you said that. Yeah. You, you, I did you say asked Reggie. You're talking out your ass. Okay. You okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't my <laughs> Yeah. So uh, George Lucas was it George Lucas? <laughs> Gary, Gary Lucas from Beefheart. <laughs> <laughs> so another guy that was definitely paying attention to this Kashif sound was George Benson, who around so this was before this album came out. So we're looking at like late '82, early '83. Yeah, heard some of the production work that Kashif was doing. Nose job Benson. Yeah, exactly. This is like you know post. Uh, Oh shit! What was his big late seventies hit? Breezin, like post Breezin, Breezin George yeah. Benson. You know, right. he did all the on Broadway. Exactly, he did all the the hot CTI stuff. You know, he made the pop hits. He could do whatever he wanted at this point, and what he wanted was to work with Kashif. So he had his people reach out. They're like, "Hey, do you want to you want to do a song or maybe an album or something with George Benson?" And Kashif said that. He was just working on so many projects at once at that point. He was like, I will do it, but you have to give me two months and then I'll bring you a hit song. Mm. And he said over the whole two months, the, you know, the label kept hitting him up. Like, how's it coming? He was like, oh, it's great. You're going to love it. He's like the whole time I hadn't written a note. I hadn't even thought about the song. Like I had just too much going on. Two months go by, still hasn't written a thing. He has like absolutely nothing for this song he goes to the studio date george benson's there who is an idol of his by the way like kashif was very very influenced by jazz especially fusion jazz stuff Mm, yeah and he sets up all the synthesizers and drum machines and george was like all right play me the song and kashif fucking 
turns on his drum machine. He's like, I knew there was loops stored in there that I'd written. I didn't know which one was which. I just turned on a random one and George is like, oh, I like that. So what are the <laughs> chords? And he's like, and I just made up chords on the spot. He's like, okay, that's good. What's the melody? So like, he drops a melody on the spot. He's like, all right, what are the lyrics? And he's just like, looks up, something pops into his head. He just gives him four lyrics. And we're like, yep, that's perfect. All right. And then it's, it was a fucking hit single for George Benson. <laughs> just completely <laughs> pulled it out of his ass, played it cool. Everyone thought that he had been spending two months writing this song. <laughs> just so legendary yeah that's so rad that's like such a boss move Be oh like, my god yeah you know and like to say it after the fact like yeah i cruised in i was so nervous i didn't know what i was gonna do so i just played these four chords i hit the drum machine boom hit, hit record for george benson he was really happy yep. <laughs> <laughs> he probably recorded like three more hits for other artists that same day too you know like <laughs> bro like the the amount of music that he did just in like between like 80 and 85 oh sure it's just like it's just like hard to imagine like putting out or being that busy like working that much i mean i can only go by the metric of myself and uh i don't know i write like two songs a year <laughs> <laughs> and the, the i mostly do podcasts is... <laughs> and drink wine you know <laughs> yeah these podcasts do slow you down <laughs> We're sorry. Uh, I think this one is gonna like juice my creativity rather than the uh, than the opposite. Perfect. We're we're, we're here to help. Mm. the The real fucked up thing about Kashif though is like by the end of the eighties, he had almost retired from music and like moved on to other things. At that point, he had like repositioned himself as a like activist and like social worker advocate and a film director like he was working on multiple films and productions after this and like was super involved in the community you know growing up in uh, the foster care system he reinvested a lot into the foster care system as an adult Mm. and did a lot for mentoring up-and-coming artists he wrote a best-selling book about like how to make it in the music industry and like what to avoid to like not get taken advantage of (laughs) like he was just doing everything i mean like he so he sadly passed in 2016 and he was still working just as hard as ever he was actually in the process of making a 10-part documentary series about the history of r&b music and its influence on like society and culture I'm sure that would have been amazing. Oh, my God. He's also perfectly situated, like, if you think about, uh, you know, his his career in the mid-80s or whatever. If you start from the 50s and you go to 2020, he's right in the sweet spot to, like, understand. And also, like, the big, the huge, like, uh, steep grade and of proliferation of, like, black music in general and R&B in particular. Mm -hmm. He'd be a good mind to have on it, yeah. Um, you could, do, so when I first moved to New York and I was like real heavy listening to, uh, a lot of Kashif at the time. And so I just happened to Google him and you could pay for, he had a mentorship program <laughs> that he did over, um, what do you call it? Not what the thing before zoom Skype Skype. Right. So you could Skype him from Florida. He would lived in uh, Hawaii at the time and he would give you advice on on whatever. And I swear to God, I was like, I'm going to fucking sign up for this shit. And I honestly wish I had. I'd probably be, <laughs> I'd probably be a Madonna by now. Yeah. yeah. You probably didn't know that time was 
limited at, at the time. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. Well, if you had gotten that Kashif mentorship, you probably wouldn't be on this podcast right now. So I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so like it yeah. would have been a mixed bag, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys want to hear another song real quick? Yeah, I think we should yeah, do definitely. that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. How about track three? I just got to have you. Parentheses. Lover turned me on. Oh, thank God love is in the title. Are you saying that to me? (laughs) I mean... things i noticed about this record is that although it is entering that synthesizer age there's still a lot of live instrumentation on it and on the drums on that track is someone named leslie ming and he had joined bt express on their third album energy to burn at kashif's recommendation and i guess the story goes that yeah kashif had joined bt express on keyboards and saw that the drummer at the time for BT Express had a drug problem and could tell that that drummer was on borrowed time as far as uh, their time with BT Express and, you know, was, was telling Leslie Ming, come to the gigs, come to the gigs. This drummer's going to drop off. And, and at one really mm. huge show, the drummer just like halfway through the performance just fell off the throne <laughs> and couldn't perform anymore. And Leslie Ming was there knew what to do, had been, you know, practicing the songs and got on the kit and just picked up right from there halfway through this huge show at like a Coliseum. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> was and uh, Leslie Ming also played with M2May and uh, 
So that's one more person I had a little information on who appears on this record. I would, on a side note, I would, uh, uh, my drummer, Jay Zone, uh, has a podcast or a, a show with uh, that was on Red Bull Music Academy, and he uh, interviews Leslie Ming. And um, there's also, if you want to, the tune that we were just listening to, there's a live video of the, of Kashif and his band doing it on Video Soul, which was like a cool 80s, um, cool 80s R&B, like sort of American bandstand thing. And Leslie Ming is on there. And he's playing like a, a Simmons uh, drum pads kit and just like hamming it up. I mean, it's great. You know, he's got a jerry curl and he's like catching cymbals and stuff. I mean, just like ripping in an old school R&B kind of uh, bringing it to the people kind of way. I would encourage you to look uh, oh, to, wow. for everybody to check that out. Leslie Ming, is a, he's a legend. I think he also played with Madonna uh, later. Yeah. I think that was another Madonna connection. Yeah. I, I want to say you're right there. So it was a, a drum pad kit, like an 80s drum pad kit. Yeah, you know, the the eights, the octopad, uh, or no, no, mm-hmm. is it eight-sided? Eight-sided um, octagon? Octo sounds right. Yeah, yeah. And also at the time in 83, that was like absolutely brand new, like brand new. Nobody had that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, again, looking forward, being like right on top of that. And also if you watch the same clip of, of uh, on Video Soul... I think it was at Christmas time. And um, there's a rack of keyboards like a mile high, you know, it's not, and it's not, um, it's not mimed. So they're out there with like the whole gear with the synthesizer, with the, you know, like with a stack of synthesizers and the sequencer going and the live drummer playing and the live guitar player playing and the live singers. It's a, it, 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 it's pretty incredible. And that must've been a very new way to make music at the time. You hear the count off one, two, three, four, and it jumps in because they play the count off over the thing. Whereas like, that would be something like nowadays that somebody would hear in their headphones, in their earpiece. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have seen that video and I can also attest to its awesomeness. Everyone it's should go so check that out. Awesome. It's so and good. Then, you know what thing, a thing about another thing about that, Sorry, I've had some wine, so I'm going to wrap. But uh, Kashif has a very childish, childlike, I don't want to say childish, childlike quality. He's kind of round-faced, you know, and um, he just like looks like a kid. And he was, he was a fucking kid. And I don't know, there's something about this kind of naivete that appeals to me. I don't think he was a naive person, but like uh, someone who sort of looks young or feels young or is young has yeah. like can bring something like to a performance that feels uh sincere or, or uh, authentic even if the drummer is behind you twirling the sticks and in the most awesome way ever and you know you're wearing the top you know like the the, the hottest 80s fashions or whatever but you look at kashif and you can sort of hear him like sort of mean it you know Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was something I read an interview with Leslie Ming and you know both he and Kashif and BT Express were teenagers at the time and they were almost 20 years younger than some of the other members of BT Express and uh, wow. they had that youthful energy but they also you know had these much older performers around them to learn from as well right I think that's where the the like Kashif couldn't have done this as such a young person without having like already been in the fucking game 10 years you know Mm -hmm. by the time he even like sat down to write his own album he was already a a fucking road dogging uh veteran yeah in his like mid-20s you know right (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
It's crazy. Sean, do you have a list of Kashif imposters for the people? Yeah. I got that I got that hot Spotify playlist made up with uh I leaned very heavily this time on stuff that Kashif either produced or played on, which is an absurdly awesome list yeah. of songs. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's just so, got a heavy synth bass. <laughs> like, yeah. like you know, that's that's what's going on on that playlist. I, I peeped it. There's a lot of synth bass. That's good yeah, vibe. exactly. I, yeah. If you if you love synth bass as much as I do, then this is the playlist for you. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we got some BT Express on there featuring Kashif. We got uh, the first hit that he wrote for Evelyn Champagne King, as well as other artists he worked with: Melba Moore, Howard Johnson, Kenny G. Whitney Houston, Pleasure, Tavares, uh, the one late period Four Tops record that he did, which is actually like surprisingly dope for an 80s Four Tops record. Mm. Oh my God, Guess yeah. George Benson, Melissa Morgan on there. And uh, Ben, you had recommended a couple songs I put on the list as well. You want to tell the people? Yeah, yeah. I uh, Let's see, what did I say? Okay, so, you know, I think of uh, Kashif's, one of his big contributions to the realm of r&b was this like synthesizer thing and like he didn't even quite go all the way there in a way like uh, maybe prince did or michael jackson or people later did with like full-on production that was like a completely synthesizer and uh you know, i don't know someone like sherrick or or you know these these like later 80s guys even bobby brown you know there was a you know fat back which was a group here from in in queens uh in new york yeah they rule that had a very very long career that everybody knows about and um there's just no way that someone like kashif was unaware of these guys or even uh, another group what i would say was like cool in the gang tri-state area funk boss people bt express he was in the group but also that sound like started to reach uh, pretty far out there. And I would argue that the funkiest state in America is Ohio, mm. where you get some of the funkadelics and the parliaments uh, started out there. But, you know, members of James Brown's band, you know, and then uh, Zap. There you go. Boom. That's a big one. Zap. You got um, Dayton is another good one. Um I can't believe I can't even remember one for right now, but uh, I mean, Bootsy's from Ohio. You know, it's a very funky, very funky state. And uh, I think Ohio that Kashif's Ohio, oh man, <laughs> dude, talk about people with a long career too, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, I think Kashif sound like it really went out there, especially with the advent of home recording and home demoing. Mm -hmm. Like people were able to like get a hold of this stuff and like, also, this is the same thing that birthed hip hop was like commercial uh, or uh, consumer grade like a, a sampler that you could have at home and stuff like that and synthesizers yeah. right and that grape it opened up a big a lot of music and the kind of a lot of music that uh, people like the people on this podcast like really dig you know like I think that's the legacy of some of these bigger artists that like do these go out on these crazy limbs like going back to the Sgt. Peppers, it's like that spawned like a, the most insane, that spawned like psychedelic, then prog rock, then, you know, go on. I'm not going to say that they did it, did it by themselves or anything or that like Sid Barrett wasn't a part of that, but this, it took a huge name to make the, the statement to like put the pin in the map, you know? 
Yeah. yeah. Well, between Kashif and Stevie Wonder, those were like the two guys that most people first heard the use of a sampler. Um, that was like the introduction right. of that instrument to the public. And yeah, like you said, it not only changed the game in terms of the sounds and the styles that people were using, but just the fact that one person with the, the musical know-how and creativity could get the right instruments and making an album without anyone's help was something that hadn't really been done for this kind of music up until this point. Yeah, right. Having a four-track uh, machine at home, which I'm sure everyone on this uh, podcast has done and made something <laughs> on their own. I mean, this is like, this is the kind of... Fostex. Yeah, this is the kind of technology that made everything that we all... Uh, anything that we, people of our uh, generation, have done, you know? And he was just like inventing this as it was happening you know he wasn't i mean it doesn't have a lot to do with your home uh, bedroom noise tapes but it like doesn't not have anything to do with it either <laughs> right the, the, the spirit is still there for sure yeah, so like if we're gonna wrap it up in a in a bow i'm gonna go um that's what i'm gonna say yeah perfect <laughs> <laughs> well ben we have uh sung the praises of your music uh would you like to tell the people where they can find it on the internet or otherwise you can find me on Spotify under my name, Ben Parani. You can find me on Instagram uh, if you like. That's P-I-R-A-N-I. You got right? it. Pirani. Yep, that's right. Yep. And um, yeah, I don't know if you like uh, memes and stuff. You can follow me on Instagram. Um, <laughs> silly. Uh, uh, I don't know. You know. What, uh, what labels have you released music with now? Okay, so, you know what, as a matter of fact, I didn't even think to mention this, but uh, back in 2015, I put out an album on Cherry's Records that I think is actually a more direct influence of my time, like, really, like, analyzing Kashif and and also, like, a more similarly um, instrumentalized uh, a, a set of tunes, and that was called Arriving, that came out on Cherry's Records under the name Benjamin in, like, 2015, and then uh, after that, I put out a few things myself on Palmetto Street on my own label out of Queens. And then um, I hooked up with Coal Mine out of Ohio, My mid going back to my Midwest roots. I think more more than a couple of us on this call have the, have those. Yep. <laughs> and uh, and and yeah, that that's been really cool. And now I'm I'm sort of uh, re reviving my old label and I'm producing a bunch of stuff on there and you can you know sort of look forward to that and new Ben stuff too uh, I just keep looking listening and looking for more new music and it's it's taking the things that I do in in my life and in my the way I sort of perceive things and shifts them and twists them and I just want to keep making stuff that is you know it's it's very inspiring to think of this guy in this time that just like absolutely fucking destroyed the game just like blew everybody's mind like blew madonna's mind and kelly g's <laughs> kenny g's mind you know totally like that ain't nothing like even if he's not the huge if even if he's not michael jackson to us in culture now to do something that that is that bold is a, a, a you know it's a very inspiring sort of mode once again i'm glad we can use what little platform we have on this podcast to help reclaim the legacy of another <laughs> underappreciated artist <laughs> yeah yeah and if you want to listeners if you want to check out that playlist you can find it by searching i'd buy that podcast on spotify all 
just one block of letters, right, Sean? Yes. I buy that podcast. And you can always help support our efforts here at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. Same story there. And yeah, do we have any final thoughts? Uh, Jeremy, you got anything for us over there? No. (laughs) (laughs) I like Kashif. That's awesome because you sound like a robot voice through my headphones. (laughs) No. No. Are we going to go out on this last tune? We uh, are, yeah, we're going to say our goodbyes and okay. close it out cool. on the jam. Say something, I, love. I have a little something to say about that, So, but let's say our goodbyes, right? It's me, Ben. Well, you can... I'm saying goodbye. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's me, Peter. I also love you. Hey, listeners. It's me, Sean, and I really love you, too. Hey, everyone. It's Jeremy here. It's a new year. We have a bright future in front of us, and we all love you. You're fucking a right. We do. Yeah, we do have a great happy happy 2021, everybody. Let's make this better than than we've been having lately, huh? Oh God, let's hope so. But <laughs> um, so uh, the the reason I I was I almost picked the the uh, song Rumors instead of the one that I picked for the last track because Rumors is it's kind of an interesting track and I always like a song with a little dialogue in the middle. Mm-hmm. But um, this tune more than any other tune on the album i think exposes a direct line from the four tops or any of this like like cool 60s soul shit that i love as evidenced by your music the well the the, like the chords that he uses and the arrangements are very yeah you know they're contemporary in some ways and and but they also like lean heavily on this like Motown thing that also keep in mind was only like ten years old true ten fifteen years true. old at the time. That's the difference between like the first little John record and right now <laughs> okay exactly okay <laughs> <laughs> you know so yeah, I don't know it's fun to always put things on this timeline, but like I listened to this last tune and I just like the, the sort of the sound and the mood of it i think it leans real heavily on some on a motown and like the kind of shit that could she probably would have been listening to like as a, a really young guy getting into music perfect all right well we're going out on the song say something love and also uh, i put rumors on the spotify playlist so you can oh, check tight, that out tight. as well <laughs> all right thanks for listening everybody see you later